We're starting a new series this morning on Nehemiah, um, which is a great book. It's a great Old Testament story. It's based in around 500-something B.C. So we're talking two and a half thousand years ago that we're looking in on this story, reading over Nehemiah's shoulder his diary as he recounts his adventures for God. And it's a, it's a story of rebuilding and reconstruction. And I think it's very timely for this time for us as a church and coming out of a pandemic and the last year and a half, two years of our experiences together. So I'm going to read to you chapter one this morning, um, all of it. It's not that long. Um, and then we'll share some thoughts together. So the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands and decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. I listened to a great message this week uh, on this passage from Pastor Tom Holiday and stole a couple of his points because they were so good. Um, so I wanted to share just, t- just three points really from uh, this uh, message, this first chapter of Nehemiah. I don't know if any of you have been watching the new drama on telly, uh, Vigil, about the nuclear submarine. Uh, it's... Um, it's just started on BBC One and a couple of episodes in. But um, they have a big crisis and uh, the engines are all shut down on this submarine. And then there's this dramatic moment. I don't know how much of this is true to form. I meant to ask Paul, who's a former submariner. Uh, I think there's quite a lot of dramatic license in this program. But anyway, I, I, I know a lot about nuclear submarines, so I'm going to share, share what I thought on it. Um, <laughs> 
But uh, they were trying to restart the engines, and there was this kind of dramatic moment as the whole crew of the submarine are waiting and trying to fire up the reactors and trying to get the nuclear submarine going again off the diesel engines, and, and uh, the drama increases, and then the, the, the engines are restarted. It's a very precarious moment as they restart the engines, uh, and whether it's going to work or not, whether they can survive this drama, this crisis. And I want to talk this morning about restarting our engines, about uh, getting ready for a restart, about this whole book of Nehemiah, about reconstruction and, and renewal. The, the biblical word is renewal, of, of, of starting again, starting afresh. And I want to talk about a couple of steps that we need to take to restart, to restart the engines. You remember, for those of us who are old enough, um, how on cars there used to be a choke. Do you remember that? I remember you, you pulled the choke. If you couldn't start the engine, you pulled the choke out and you, and you give it some extra gas to, to get the engine started. And, and you always used to hear somebody say, don't flood the engine, you know, when you were trying to restart the engine uh, from a cold start, when it wouldn't start. Don't give it too much choke. Don't, don't flood the engine. And there's that moment when you're trying to restart that it... It can be a dangerous time. It's, it's, uh, it's, there's a risk of getting frozen at the starting line. So how do you get going again when things are broken down or stalled? How do we get going again after 18 months of shutdowns and lockdowns and restrictions and pandemic and just the, the collective trauma of a global pandemic and the way that's affected the church and our lives, our families. Um, we know people perhaps that have died in the last year or two. How do, we, how do we restart? How do we do that without flooding the engine? Uh, it's, a, it's a particularly precarious time. The biblical word is renewal. It can be personal renewal. It can be corporate. But it's renewal. And Isaiah reminds us that God gives strength to the weary, and he increases the power of the weak. And even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who wait on the Lord will renew their strength. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. They will rise up on wings like eagles. How can we get faith for a restart? How can we experience renewal? How can we begin to rebuild so they came to Nehemiah, and Hanani reports to him from the exiles who were in Jerusalem. And they said to me, Nehemiah writes, Things are not going well for those who have returned to the province of Judah. They are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem has been torn down, and the gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard this, I sat down and I wept. In fact, for days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed to the God of heaven. Now the walls of Jerusalem have been down for 150 years. Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians had attacked Jerusalem about 157 years previously and, and routed the city and burned the walls and burned down the temple. And, but since that time, there had been various attempts to rebuild. There had been a couple of false starts. King Cyrus had said to some of the exiles, you can go back to Jerusalem and you can rebuild your city and you can rebuild your temple. And so edicts were given, memorandums were written in the, in the books of the king and 
and the, the remnant was sent. But then they found that they garnered great opposition in the people around them, around Jerusalem, and who opposed the rebuilding of the city, who opposed the rebuilding of the temple, and who wrote malicious reports back to the kings, the distant kings, wrote letters from the trans-Euphrates, which is just the area across the Euphrates River. And they gathered together and they wrote letters to Cyrus and and they said, um, these guys, they're, they're rebelling and they're doing bad things and they're causing trouble. And so the building was stopped. It was stopped before they even got going. They had a couple of false starts with Cyrus, King Cyrus and King Darius and King Artaxerxes, who then said, stop the building. Stop rebuilding Jerusalem. So when the report comes back to Nehemiah, they're not reporting the destruction of 150 years ago. They're reporting the situation in Jerusalem now after a few false starts after a few attempts, even though the kings had said, go ahead and rebuild, the opposition around them had stopped them. And so they, these guys report back to Nehemiah and they say, Jerusalem is in a right state. The walls are still ripped down and burned. The gates are off their hinges. The, the remnant are struggling and, and it's a terrible situation. There was a long-term problem here that Nehemiah had to address and three things that I just want to look at with you this morning that he did as they started to look at a restart, a rebuild, a renewal, which I think is timely for us. The first thing he did was he mourned. We read here, he mourned, and then he fasted, and then he prayed. Three things that he did. The first thing that he did was he mourned, and mourning is expressing your hurt to God which is what Nehemiah did. Now, we read here that the reports came to him in the month of Kislev, which is November, the end of November, beginning of December. And we read at the start of chapter 2, in the month of Nisan, he actually did something and he started to move. This, the month of Nisan is March, April. So there's a period of four months that he is mourning, he is fasting, he is praying. He's not just reacting quickly to this piece of news that he's received, but he's, he's reacting and thinking these things through. So there is a season of grief and loss. And I think it's important sometimes to acknowledge when we experience these seasons for individuals and for, uh, for churches as well and for collective groups, uh, for, to, to acknowledge um, that we miss certain people who have perhaps left or to acknowledge that we've been through a difficult season or a season of grief, a season of loss, a season of difficulty. We read in the Bible of all the key characters, whether it's Abraham or whether it's Jacob or Joseph, or how the people mourned for 30 days when Aaron died and when Moses died. There were periods of acknowledging hurt, of acknowledging grief, of acknowledging loss, to mourn to heal from pain. And I would ask the question of you this morning, is there a pain or is there a hurt or is there a loss that you need to take time to grieve? Whether that's the effects of these last 18 months, a collective sense of trauma, a sense of loss, perhaps it's a loss within your, your health, of relationships, of key friendships. Perhaps it's, uh, it's different things that have been very difficult for, for you as an individual. And when we, when we mourn, when we openly express our hurt, 
uh, we receive comfort. It, it is a key to our healing and our faith and our restoration. And it is an important key. And it is something that Nehemiah does. He mourns. He looks at the situation and he says, this sucks. This is a terrible situation. Look at Jerusalem. Look at what it was and look at what it is now. Look at the destruction. Look at the remnant. Look at the hopelessness of that situation. And he openly expressed his sorrow, his loss, his mourning. And I think this is very important for us to do. It's important for us as individuals to do that at times in our lives, to express and to acknowledge this is hard. This is a hard season. This is a difficult thing to face up to. This loss that I've experienced is traumatic. It hurts greatly. And we shouldn't run from our sadness too quickly. The sadness of of mourning opens the door of God's comfort, which is what Jesus said when he stood on a mountainside in front of the crowds, and he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. I love the the theme of comfort that we find in the scriptures. Psalm 23, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And and God speaks to the prophet and he sees a, a struggling people, a hurting people, and he says, speak to the people, prophet. He says, say, comfort my people, comfort them, speak comfort to their hearts. And Jesus, as he was leaving this earth and he saw his troubled disciples, and he saw their heartache and he he saw their sense of loss at what was transpiring before them. He said, don't let your hearts be troubled. And he said, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm going to leave this earth. I've fulfilled my mission. I'm going to the cross. I'm going back to the Father. But I will leave you another comforter. I won't leave you alone. I'll leave you another comforter. See, God is a God of, of comfort. And the word Nehemiah, the name Nehemiah means the Lord comforts. And I think when we feel loss or when we feel hurt or we feel trauma or we've experienced difficulty, whether that's collectively or individually, I think there are ways to escape from that stress, from the levels of stress that we might have experienced that have affected us perhaps mentally or physically or emotionally or relationally. I think there are good ways to escape that. I think holidays and downtime is very important recreation, restoration is very important for us and good ways. I think we, we need to down tools at times and we need to recharge and, and all of that is good. But I also think there are unhealthy ways to escape from stress and from difficulty and these are the ways in which we comfort ourselves. Where we need comfort, where we are mourning, where we are struggling, where we are hurting and we try to comfort ourselves. And of course, people do that in different myriad ways. Some of them are very obvious. Some people turn to alcohol. They even call one of the drinks that you can drink Southern Comfort. (laughs) But people turn to alcohol. And of course, uh, anecdotal reporting is that the consumption of alcohol has gone up exponentially in the last year or two. But it's a kind of a self-comfort 
self-medication. People turn to food. People turn to recreation and, and just entertaining themselves. Netflix. I'll Netflix myself out of this mood. Or social media or, or, or recreation or, or sex. or there's, there's, just, there's so many ways that we can comfort ourselves and medicate ourselves. And it's so important to take our stuff to God so it can be healed. When doubts filled my mind, the psalmist says in Psalm 94, 19, your comfort gave me renewed hope and cheer. For this reason, it says in 2 Corinthians, I am happy when I have weaknesses, insults, hard times, sufferings, and all kinds of troubles, because when I am weak, then I am truly strong. And so we mustn't be afraid of our weakness or our hurt or our sense of loss or our sense of grief, but we must name it and own it and speak it out, which is what Nehemiah did. He owned his feelings. He owned his loss, his sense of grief. He mourned. Four months long, he mourned. Johnny Erickson Tarder, who was uh, injured as a young woman and lost, uh, became a quadriplegic for the rest of her life, lived in a wheelchair. The weaker we feel, she said, the harder we lean on God, and the harder we lean, the stronger we grow. And Pastor Tom Holliday said in his message on this passage, I found that music helps me express my hurt to God. I find that I listen to certain songs that just say what I feel, <laughs> that express the emotion perfectly, that move me to tears. And sometimes there is, isn't there? There's a line of a song. Sometimes there's a movie, there's a theme, there's something that touches us very deeply that resonates with the way we feel. The first thing that Nehemiah did was he mourned. And I think that collectively and individually, it's important that we own sometimes a sense of loss or grief or hurt or pain or difficulty that we have been through. The second thing that Nehemiah did, he said, is he, he, I, I mourned, I fasted, and I prayed before the God of heaven. He fasted. If mourning is expressing our hurt to God, fasting is focusing our heart on God. Focusing our heart on God. Fasting is a way of focusing our heart on God. Uh, Joel 2 says, Turn to me with all your heart, with fasting and with weeping and with mourning. Turn to me, not fasting, we often think immediately, don't we, of not eating. <laughs> if I fast, I, I stop eating. But fasting is not so much about the not eating as about the turning towards God, focusing our heart on God. It's about prioritizing our relationship with God it's not about a change in diet. It's not, the value is not what, on what you are not doing. The value is on what you are doing. You are focusing your heart on God and you're not focusing on self-denial. And so um, it's, it's that intentional decision. It's that intentional fixing your eyes on Jesus. And even as we were worshiping this morning and, and singing about who God is, you are the, you're the savior of the whole universe, God, and we were singing how great God is. I, I sense fixing our eyes again on, on God. 
and fasting in the sense of focusing our attention on God and not on these other things. That's what Nehemiah did. So I, I, in Daniel 9 verse 3 we read, I gave my attention to the Lord God um, to seek him by prayer and pleading with fasting. We are not, as human beings, we're not like cameras with auto focus. We need to take intentional time to focus on God. It doesn't, we don't auto focus on God in our lives. And fasting focuses our attention on God. Now it may be that in this next season that you just do a, a, a one meal fast, that you miss one meal and focus that time, that attention on God. It may be that you uh, fast social media for a day and you switch those channels off because you, you want to focus your heart afresh on God and you realize that all these other things, some areas perhaps of self-distraction, self-comfort, or there's just nothing wrong with these things, but, but to focus on God, we perhaps switch off. Our, did you know there is an off switch on your phone? Did you know that? Uh, just for a day, for half a day, but to focus our heart on God, to fast something, a meal, a, a, a channel of media, a, our phones or, or something else, whatever it is, uh, to focus, it, 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 to, to, to spiritually reset. And so Chronicles 22 says, now set your heart and your soul to seek the Lord your God. This is what Nehemiah was doing as he heard the news from distant Jerusalem, he's in southwest Iran, the citadel of Susa, the holiday home of the kings of Persia. And he decides that he's just going to, as the cupbearer to the king, he's going to focus on God for a while and listen. He takes four months to do that. We're in September now. That would take us to the end of this year. Four months just to focus on God, to take specific times to set our heart afresh to seek God. It's not very easy at times. We become so distracted. The third thing that Nehemiah does is he prays. When I heard these things, I sat down and I wept. And for some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Lord, my rock, I call out to you for help. Do not be deaf to me, the psalmist says. And here in Nehemiah 1 verse 6, uh, Nehemiah says, let your heart be attentive and your ears open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. He repeats that in verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. And so Nehemiah prays in, in chapter 2, there's been much made of Nehemiah's arrow prayer. He prays a quick prayer before he goes in to talk to the king about these matters. But actually, he's been praying for four months. He's been praying day and night. He's been praying and put, putting these matters before God. How many here feel like they are great prayers? <laughs> I'm imagining that if we put up our hands, there wouldn't be many of us that really feel I've got this prayer thing nailed down. <laughs> I'm a great prayer. <laughs> I don't feel like I'm a great prayer. But if you struggle to be a great prayer, why don't you find some great prayers and pray those? 
Nehemiah's is a great prayer. (laughs) You could take Nehemiah's prayer and you could pray it. The Psalms are the Hebrew prayer book. You could take the Psalms, which we did for nine months of last year. We took the Psalms every morning. And you can pray the Psalms. They are great prayers. You may not be a great prayer, but you can find in the Bible um, a mass of great prayers that you can pray. You don't have to make your own up. (laughs) They're all there for you. The Hebrew book of prayer in the Psalms, the great prayers of Nehemiah, the great prayers of Paul, the, the great prayers of Jesus. Sometimes when I don't know what else to pray, I pray the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come today. Your will be done. Sometimes I use it as a pattern of prayer. Sometimes I just pray it verbatim because it's a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. I might not be a great prayer, but I can pray great prayers. And you can do the same. And that's what Nehemiah does here And he follows a pattern that we were taught to pray when we were children. He follows a pattern of acts. He adores God first. He he speaks of who God is. O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands. He starts by adoring God. He starts by considering who God is, by fixing his eyes on God. He sees that God is awful, (laughs) awful. Full, full of awe, awe-filled. He senses the awe of God, the awesomeness of God. He sees that God is faithful. God, you're a God who keeps your covenant promises. You're a God of hesed, a God of kindness and love. This is who you are, God. And as he focuses on God, his heart starts to swell with faith. And when we start again to just focus on who God is, then it gives us a perspective for who we are. He moves on to confession, which is the second act of prayer that we were taught to pray. pray. And he says, Lord, I confess the sins that we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws that you gave to your servant Moses. Nehemiah owns his situation. He looks at who God is, and then he owns who He is and where he is. He's honest before God. He confesses his own mess-ups and the mess-ups of his people and the disobedience of his people. And then he thanks God for his faithfulness and he brings his petition, his supplication before God. Dale Ralph Davis says God is both scary and he is dependable. And that's what Nehemiah does as he comes here. God, you are a God full of awe. You are a God who is so powerful and so mighty. I, I love those that juxtaposition in the hymn that says you are, you are merciful and you are mighty. <laughs> holy, holy, holy. You are merciful and you are mighty. And that's what Nehemiah does. And that's what we can do. We can focus on who God is and how mighty God is, how powerful God is, how awesome he is. Uh, as we reflected um, from the book of Ephesians and Paul's prayer, I pray that you will begin to understand how in incredibly great his power is to help those who believe in him this is the God to whom we come this is the awesomeness of God and the faithfulness of God and then the confession of Nehemiah he honestly shares his weaknesses and his faults 
The walls were torn down around Jerusalem because the people of God had been disobedient. And at moments like these in our lives, where there is a collapse or where there is calamity, we can wallow in one of two things. We can wallow in blame or we can wallow in shame. We can blame somebody else. It's their fault. It's his fault. It's her fault. It's the church's fault. We want to blame somebody because things have gone wrong. Things are not what they were. The former glory has gone. We can wallow in blame or we can wallow in shame, which is self-blame. We blame ourselves. We wallow in our own self-blame, our own shame. But God wants to move us from a place of blame and shame to mercy and grace. Mercy means that we don't get what we do deserve. And grace means that we do get what we don't deserve. There's no whitewash from Nehemiah. He acknowledges the situation. He acknowledges the, the brutality of it. Jim Collins says in his book, in his book Good to Great, uh, acknowledge the, the facts, the gruesome facts sometimes, the brutal facts. Acknowledge them, openly admit them. He confesses his own participation in that. He sees the ruins. He sees the burned down walls and the exposed gates. He confesses his own part and the, and the part of his people in it. But he also knows that God is not helpless among the ruins. Eric Liddell, I've quoted this, uh, this quote before, but it, it is so true. And it is so true in this situation for Nehemiah. And it is so true for you this morning and for us. Eric Liddell was the runner of Chariots of Fire fame. Uh, and he surrendered his Olympic career as a gold medal winning runner to move to China to teach at a school for missionary children with his family. And a few years later, um, he and his wife transitioned and moved further into the Chinese countryside of Hubei to reach more Chinese people with the gospel. The situation on the ground at that time as he was there was deteriorating rapidly. The Second World War was approaching and the Mission Society didn't perhaps fully recognize what we can see with hindsight, what was happening around them. And so um, many missionaries were not pulled out, but some were. But Eric Liddell knew that his family needed to leave China quickly. And uh, in the May of 1941, he sent his wife, Flo, and their two daughters aboard a Japanese ship to cross the Pacific to Canada. But he stayed behind, and they would never see him again. And during that harrowing time of the the collapse of the mission and his isolation in um, China, he was writing a book to young disciples. He was writing a book on discipleship. And he was living it out, this ex-Olympic runner. And uh, even with his own family situation and the the distance from his wife and his children and the the approach of war and and the failing mission situation, he wrote in his diary and in his preparation for his book on discipleship, he wrote these words. He said, circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans. But God is not helpless among the ruins. God's love is still working. 
He comes in and he takes the calamity and he uses it victoriously, working out his wonderful plan of love. God is not helpless among the ruins. God's love is still working. Circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans. And Little then goes on in his book to quote Romans 8, verse 28, very well-known passage of Scripture. And he says, And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. And this faith in God's love and sovereignty would soon be severely tested in Eric Liddell's life through a prolonged period of helplessness and loss. You may feel helpless this morning, among the ruins. The ruins of a relationship broken or lost. A loved one gone. Singleness prolonged. Infertility not overcome. Your health, your aspirations, your reputation. The former glory seems far away. The laughter and the brighter times And you see broken down walls and ruins and you see burned gates. And Nehemiah reminded God of his promises. He said, God, you promised. You promised that you would be faithful. You promised that you would love us. Come what may, you promised us your hesed, your loving kindness. God, you promised. And then he lifts up this specific prayer as he gets ready to go and see the king and present his cause and the cause of Jerusalem to Artaxerxes. And he says, God, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man, (laughs) this man, the king of Persia, the most powerful man on the earth, (laughs) this man, God, because I know that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. I know, God, that you're more powerful than Artaxerxes. I know, God, that you're more powerful than these circumstances, than whatever I face, whatever you face. I know, God, you can deal with it because you're a God of hesed, a God of love, a God of faithfulness, a God who keeps your covenant promises. And I know, God, that some of these burned-down walls are our own fault. And I know, God, that we have disobeyed you. But God, shows your hesed, shows your faithfulness, shows your loving kindness. And God, help me with this man as I go and talk to him tomorrow. I was the cupbearer to the king. The all-powerful Artaxerxes, this man, the heart of the king, is in the hand of the Lord. Some power, people are not as powerful as you think they are. Some circumstances are not as dire as you fear they may be. But it wasn't easy, and there were false starts, and there was great opposition, and there was political pressure, and there was intrigue. And Nehemiah did three things to take the first steps towards a restart and a time and a period of renewal for the people of God. He mourned, he expressed his hurt to God. He fasted, He focused his heart on God and he prayed, he asked for help from God. 
And for you to apply this this morning, as we go into this week, as we go into September, as we go back to school, as we reopen, as we, as we make changes, perhaps you may want to listen to some songs this week that perfectly express your heart to God. Perhaps you might find a psalm that perfectly expresses the dilemma that you feel, the hurt, the pain, the mourning, the loss. You may be with the psalmist crying, how long, oh God, how long? Or why, oh God, have you forsaken me? Or why do you feel so far from me, oh God? You might write your own psalm and express yourself to God in honest terms. In honest terms, you may mourn. And I would say to you this morning, rather than comfort yourself or find comfort in a bottle or a pill or, or whatever else that you may find comfort from God, bring your mourning to God, find your comfort in God. God is the ultimate comforter and do a limited fast Uh, it's time to refocus it's time to fix your eyes on Jesus and do what it takes for you to do that fast before God fast something you do not have autofocus in your life I don't my focus is everywhere focus on God fast something to do that to focus your heart on God and pray he, Nehemiah is specific in his prayers. He adores God. He remembers how big God is. And then he confesses. He's honest. Confession is just agreeing with God. Confession just means you just line up the truth of your own life with God. It is what you say it is, God. You are true and you are right. Acknowledge who you are, where you are, and then ask for specific help, which is what Nehemiah does with a very specific prayer. I'd love to pray for you this morning, but I would like to remind you, circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. God's love is still working. He comes in and he takes the calamity and he uses it victoriously, working out his wonderful plan of love. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning as we consider this story of Nehemiah, this ancient story, as we read over his shoulder, we see you at work. And God, I pray that as we come into a time of transition and we seek to rebuild in many ways, to restructure, to renew, to start again afresh, to restart the engines, Lord, We don't want to freeze at the starting line, but we want to take these steps. We want to acknowledge how tough it's been, how tough it is, how difficult. We want to acknowledge our hurts, our habits, our hang-ups. And we want to mourn and we want to find comfort in you, God. I pray that we would begin again to find comfort in God and not other substitutions. And I pray that, Lord we would also fast in the sense of focusing our hearts on you afresh where we have drifted. And Lord, I pray that as we pray, even over these coming months, as we walk through this series, I pray, God, that we would find you moving in powerful ways. And I thank you, God, that you are a God of hesed, of loving kindness, and we can ultimately rely on you whatever we face. And Paul's recollection and reminder stands true for every one of us this morning. 
Because the thing is, with comforting ourselves, we can lose all of those things. They're all, they all can be taken away. But what Paul reminds us is this. I'm convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our God, our Lord. And God, I thank you that nothing can separate us from your love, your comfort, your provision. And I pray, God, that you will comfort your people. In Jesus' name, amen.